Hello there, I'm Patrick Strofe, president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Todd Delphinius, funding principal and managing partner of Clavis Capital Partners. Based in Dallas, Clavis Capital Partners recognized that there was a better model and approach to private equity and set out to build a different kind of investment firm, one that was more focused on the operations, on the longer term, and on deploying capital in the most flexible and effective manner possible. And that model would be the independent sponsor model. So Todd, it's gonna be great to talk to you about this. I'm very excited. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on today. Yeah, before we get into Clavis Capital Partners, let's give our audience a little bit of context for you. How did you get to this point in your career? Uh, well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it, uh, Patrick. Um, uh, so I, I started Clavis uh, eight years ago. Um, I was 43 years old at the time. Um, up until that point uh, in my career, I had spent most of my career in operations. I had, I had been the CEO of a mid-sized manufacturing firm for a number of years. I had done the kind of the big corporate thing. I'd worked for Schneider Electric, um, uh, which is a, a, a European-based industrial company. I ran a number of their business units uh, and their M&A team for a while. And I, I started out my career at Deloitte Consulting doing strategy and operations consulting. And, you know, as I look back, all of that experience, that operations and strategy, and even the consulting experience really is beneficial to what I do today. And uh, when I started Clavis um, eight years ago, I, I, like most things, um, you know, I, I was looking for, I wanted to take my operational experience and apply it to more, more of an investing type model. I talked to, and, and frankly, was interviewing with a number of, of, of PE firms, and I was looking for that firm that had more of that operational background and, and that operational bent that, that, had, that was similar to my background. Mm -hmm. And I really, I couldn't find it. I mean, I kept running into the same type of person over and over again, um, uh, and, and groups that were really the backgrounds were much more financial services, financial engineering, uh, investment banking backgrounds. And so, you know, I, I remember the time actually, uh, I, was, I was in the office of a good friend of mine and was bemoaning the fact that I couldn't quite find the job that I was looking for. And he's the one that finally kind of said, you know, well, then go create it yourself. And so, <laughs> uh, so I guess the short story is I couldn't find the job that I was looking for. So I had to, I had to, I had to invent it. Unfortunately, it didn't pay well at the time, but um, you know, I, I, I really had a vision at the time to start uh, a, a group that was staffed by and led by operational and strategic people mm -hmm. and uh, really had a vision at that time to create this. And it, it takes a lot longer than you ever think it will. But, um, you know, fast forward now, our, our team is all uh, operating and strategic uh, professionals and um you know, we've been successful thus far. So I guess it worked out, but it, it the early days, you never know if that's, if that's going to work or not. Yeah. Well, as, as what happens when you get to be our age, you blink and all of a sudden five years goes by. So you may right. well slog <laughs> it through and blink and, you know, it'll all be behind you. So that'll be great. Yeah. So it brings it. Yeah. And that brings us to Clavis Capital. And obviously you didn't name, name the organization Delphinius Capital because you, <laughs> yeah, you have more creativity than us insurance folks or the lawyers out there. 
So <laughs> give us a story, because that's a nice insight into the culture of the firm. You know, how did you come up with the name Clavis Capital? Yeah, no, it is a it is a it's a funny story. Um, so the story is that uh, uh, we had rented a house in Sun Valley, Idaho, many years ago. My wife was seven and a half months pregnant, and I had a two and a half year old. And on a Sunday night, uh, I took my family out to dinner and um, came back to the house. And and this was before Airbnb and be, yeah. before any of that. I'd rented it from a, a friend of mine who had a rental service and. And as I get back on Sunday night, uh, I realize I've locked myself out of the house. Oh. And it, it is, oh. yeah, it is locked up tight as a drum. And I, oh. I, 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 I'm trying to find a way in the house. I can't get in the house. And it's late. On, it's getting late on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I was standing on the back porch and I'm, I'm kind of looking down and just really ticked off at myself for, for doing <laughs> this because I couldn't blame anyone. I couldn't blame yeah. my two and a half year old. Yeah. And as I'm looking down, I, I happen to glance over in a flower bed. And in the flower bed, I, I picked up a glint of, of a metallic object in there. And so I, I reached down and lo and behold, there's a key. It's the it's the backup key. And it had been there for a long time. And so and and it got us in the house. And and that key has always been uh, significant to me. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of you could, you know, there's all kinds of different uh, things you could you could read into that. But I kept that key. And so when I started my firm, I wanted to um, I wanted to to do something that 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 involved that key. Well, clavis is Latin for key. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everything key was not only generic, but all of the URLs were taken. And so I had to go to Latin to find uh, to find an available URL and uh, something that, that that sort of sounded neat. And so that's that really is the. Um, the story behind the name and it, it really, like you mentioned, it, it, um, it, it's part of our culture and it's, and culture is a big thing for us, both in our firm, my firm and, uh, and the companies we invest in, we pay a, a lot of attention to culture. And so that's a, that's a cool little story that we can tell to people. It, it has some meaning and, and it, it obviously uh, is, is very meaningful to us. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's fantastic. And there's a, a key is iconic for a lot of different uh, different areas and, and so forth. And, and you talk about culture, and there are a lot of people that they pay lip service to culture, but it, it is a real strength and something you've got to focus on, particularly for the type of organization you are. Because let's face it, in the investment world right now, you've got over 4,000 private equity firms out there yep. and, and more coming every time. Add to that family offices. And then you know, there are thousands, I don't know, it's very fragmented, the sector, but you've got independent sponsorship sponsors out there too. And you have to distinguish yourself from all the others out there. And, and culture is a great way because it comes from the heart. You can't fake it. And so, you know, you and I talked earlier, you mentioned that you made a, you know, in your website, it says you recognize there's a better model out there, but you intentionally went the uh, independent sponsor route and you've not outgrown into a fund. So let's talk about that as a model, what it does for you, what it enables you to do for your investments uh, and, and how that's been successful. Yeah, and, uh, and, and you're right to bring up there, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of competition in this market. And it's it is really difficult to certainly to, to, to differentiate yourself or to get that message out. 
mm-hmm. and and to get people to understand that the uh, and and there's no barrier to entry to being an independent sponsor. That's the thing that's most frustrating to me in a lot of ways is there's there's no you know anybody can hang their shingle up and 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 just call themselves that that term and. So I even struggle with a little bit of the, what to call ourselves. We don't call ourselves generally uh, PE because we're not a fund, nor do I have any interest whatsoever in, in raising a fund. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some specific reasons for that. But what I do for a living, what really gets me jazzed and what gets me out of bed in the morning is not deploying capital per se. It's building businesses. That's where the operational background comes in. What me and and the other members of my team are really good at and really, really like is building businesses. Mm -hmm. And so the second you raise an institutional fund, you are now in the asset deployment business. And your job now is to get that, that, that those dollars out the door. The people who who do that for a living, they're, they're great people, and 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 they they have a lot of fun doing what they're doing. But they spend their day differently than how I spend my day. I spend my day really working on with our leadership teams at our portfolio companies, developing long-term strategy, uh, developing you know the, the the plans and the operational plans to 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 really grow those businesses. And so we spend. A, a, a lot more of our time doing those operational and strategic things. If I have a fund, that's not what I get to do on a day-to-day basis. Um, I'm managing LPs. I'm I'm raising money. I'm uh, deploying that capital, and it causes you to do some things that you might not want to do. Um, there are pros and cons to both models, no doubt. But what gets me really excited is is being able to spend dedicated time on our portfolio companies and working with the leadership teams and, and sort of being that, that right-hand person to the CEO of our portfolio company. So I get, I get the best job really, in my opinion, I have the, I have the best job in the world. I get to be sort of quasi CEO and strategy guy, but without the day-to-day headaches uh, that I used to have when I was running my own, uh, my own company. And yeah, you summarized that really well where you said, look, the, the day you open up a fund, you become, you know, you move away from what you love doing, which is being company builder. And you go from company builder to financial engineer. And Absolutely. nothing wrong, but there are some people that love the engineering. There are other people that really love rolling up their sleeves and, and, and doing that. I would think that would appeal to owners and founders looking, you know, they're at an inflection point. They want to move to the next level. And, you know, they want somebody who's going to actually be with them side by side. And, and work with them. And I think under this model, there's no dilution of your attention. Yeah, that's right. And it does, it appeals to the person who is really looking for a partner, not just looking to sell their business to, okay. to the highest bidder. And, and there are both types out there and they're, they're, they're fine. But we are very selective in the types of things that we get involved in for a number of reasons. Number one, we can't do a whole lot of deals at, at the same time. We, mm-hmm. we can only concentrate on so many deals. And, and that's really how I want it. I mean, that allows me to get deeply involved and my team to get deeply involved in each individual deal. Uh, we also can't afford to get any one of them wrong. Yeah. Um, in a fund structure, you know, you may invest in 10, 15 companies in a fund and you know that 
two or three or four of them are just not going to go well. They're going to go bad. I can't afford that. I, every single deal that we get involved in is its own deal. And, and so I can't afford to get it wrong. So we spend a lot of time really evaluating our opportunities. And that's where you mentioned earlier culture. That's where culture comes into this. And it's not just lip service because the you can tell a lot about how successful an investment is going to be based on the company culture that the leadership of that company has built. And if you go into a place and they've got really great culture, you can feel it. It's, it's not something that's easy to... Uh, see necessarily, but you can feel it. Those investments will do nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10. Those those investments are going to do just fine because they've been built right from the ground up uh, because the, the leadership have, have focused on building that culture. I'm, I'm curious, when you talk about culture now, I mean, it's one of those, you, you can see it or you can feel it immediately. It doesn't have to be translated. I mean, is it that easy? Did you Are you able to tune to recognize that real quick? Yeah, it, it, we, we've gotten better at it. But yeah, you, you can tell. You can tell. And there, there's a couple things that are, that are a little bit telltale when you, when you go to, even before you go visit, you can usually get some sense of the culture. It's amazing, you know, just what you can tell by going out to the internet and seeing, you know, how does the website present and what's, you know, what, what, what is that? Does that talk about culture? You know, we, we've we've seen we've we've gotten really intrigued with some um, companies where there were YouTube videos uh, that the CEO had put out there that talked about culture. You know, if you can a lot of times even before going out there, you can tell a little bit. Then definitely when you go out on site and you meet with the leadership team and you meet with the management, um, how they talk, how they talk about their company. You can always tell what's the level of pride in the company, both how they talk, how does the how does the business present. If you walk around the plant, uh, in our case, we do a lot of manufacturing stuff, and the plant's really, you know, clean, and people are wearing the logo and stuff. That tells you a lot about the pride of of the people that the people have in the firm and the culture that they have. If you go there and nobody talks about the employees, and it's a dark and you know really really uh, um, gritty gritty place, usually that kind of tells you a little bit as well. So it's more art than science, but um, if you've got a little bit of a trained eye to it and you're looking, if you're looking for it, you can, you can see. It. Okay. Yeah. Well, and now and we can, you know, not to focus on numbers or anything, but you're usually going for majority interest. And then uh, you prefer having the, the owner founder remain with you or are, or how many of the deals happen where the owner just wants an exit? You know, in, in in every case that we've actually done the deal, um, the owner has stayed with the business. Okay. But having said that, because of our operational background, it doesn't scare us to have um, situations where an owner might be looking for an for an exit, not only a financial exit, but a, but a um, you know he's looking to retire or to step back or whatever. Um, I tell owners all the time, I'd rather know what your intentions are. I can work around those. And we've had a situation, we've had two situations in our portfolio where the owner wanted to stick around for a transition period, a year or two, mm-hmm. and then wanted to retire. And, and we were fine with that. And, and we, in both cases, honored that, that wish and worked with the owner to find the right leader 
for that business after the owner stepped away. And, and we're not scared of that at all. But in most cases, uh, we're looking for somebody who's looking for a partner. And if, if they're looking for a partner, then they're usually not looking to just sell 100% and go sit on the beach because that's, okay. that's, that, that doesn't work with our model very well. Gotcha. And, the, and your focus is on the industrial sector, which before I started this podcast, being quite admittedly based in Silicon Valley, our view of uh, manufacturing is pretty much limited to the tech sec- sector where you've got clean rooms and all these spotless little germ-free yeah. environments and everything. And, you know, you're in that nice gritty, you know, uh, sector there where the, where the real work happens. And I'm surprised to see how, you know, manufacturing and industrials are actually thriving right now. So, you know, kind of share with me, why did you pick that sector? Is it just your background or, you know, other reasons? Yeah, it's it's um, a lot of it came from my background to start with. It's something that I know a little bit about having having run manufacturing businesses before. So I, you know, I, I was trained in lean manufacturing and Six Sigma and all of those fancy words that came out of the you know 80s, 90s and 2000s. But really, our focus is in industrial and manufacturing not as much because we know something about it, but we really believe in that sector and, and in particular, the renaissance that we believe is is kind of happening in this country in manufacturing. Some people call it, you know, man, manufacturing 4.0 or whatever you want to call it. But we have a specific thesis about uh, what is going on in manufacturing and what we're seeing in the reshoring of manufacturing back to the U.S., the kind of undoing of what happened over the last 30 years when manufacturing, when supply chains got very disaggregated and and, and placed globally, uh, and that worked for a long time. What we're seeing now is the market has evolved such that speed to market rapid prototyping, mass customization, all of these things that are now trends in, in the market. And it really, it starts with the consumer. The consumer has gotten really used to having something delivered, custom made instantaneously yeah. to their door. You can't do that if you're manufacturing everything in China. Um, so we, and, and then throw on top of that, the, the world has just gotten a lot more complex and complicated and you throw in, you know, trade wars and things like that. China, Asia in particular has gotten a lot less interesting and a lot less advantageous. Uh, it's a lot that uh, China has gotten more costly uh, mm-hmm. over the last um, uh, decade or two. And so we're seeing a lot of people come back uh, reshoring. But the manufacturing that is coming back is looks a lot different than the manufacturing that left. And this is where it looks a lot more like your Silicon Valley and your tech oriented uh, businesses than it certainly did in, in the you know, industrial age when you were talking big plants and, and uh, a lot of people. There's a lot of technology now involved in producing goods and, and prototyping goods and speed to market. There's a lot more. Um, high tech stuff uh, that is 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 being invested in and, and put into ground here in the United States. And so even though 
you know, our orientation is manufacturing and industrial. That doesn't mean that we don't uh, pay a lot of attention to the technology mm-hmm. uh, and the, the the very rapid advancement of technology that's occurring in our space. And and that's really where we like to invest. We're looking to invest in, in more uh, tech-enabled manufacturing. And you're seeing that across the board. It's it's really a, an exciting place to be right now. Now with and and with your your targets and your investments, you're usually the first in institutional capital coming. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a unique aspect of what you're doing as an independent sponsor, you had mentioned you can't get these these deals wrong. You don't have that margin for error right. uh, as, as you're going forward. And in mergers and acquisitions, there are a couple of things that happen you touched on with culture is you know, you cannot remove the human element. This isn't, you know, company A and company B, you know, coming together as one group of people agreeing to partner with another group of people. And so, you know, you've got that human element. And a lot of times what happens, and I can imagine this happens every time in your case, is that you have, you're on one side of the table and you're an experienced buyer and your counterparty, the seller, isn't experienced. It's not that they're naive. They just don't go do this all the time. Yep. And so as they go through the process, you know, particularly when you're going through diligence, which you've got to be thorough because you can't afford to miss, they're not used to that. And yep. then following that process, okay, they come through the diligence, then you sit down, and you're, you know, bringing out the purchase and sale agreement. And then there's this indemnification clause. And what the seller hears, who's not experienced, when, when their lawyer is reading the indemnification clause, they hear buyer saying to them, Okay, I know we just went through this invasive diligence process, but just in case we, the buyer, missed anything and that miss leads to us suffering financially, we're going to hold you to pay us for any losses we have. It's just, you know, if we couldn't find something, we don't want to be out of pocket with a lemon. So, you know, that's just part of the business. It's standard procedure. We'll have an escrow and and you're all set. Probably nothing's there, so don't worry about it. And for a seller that's not used to hearing that, their response is, wait a minute, I told you everything. You can't yeah. hold me responsible for something I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Experienced buyer says, well, yeah, but I'm making a bet of tens of millions of dollars that your memory is perfect. This is this happens in all the deals. It's just part of the process. Yeah. And right there, you've taken a collaborative situation and all of a sudden there's this potential for distrust to come in, stress, fear of the unknown. And, you know, um, it, it's a real challenging thing. And it sometimes derails deals. And the tragedy mm-hmm. is that that whole process can, can be avoided. And the way that happens is now the insurance industry in the last several years came through with an insurance policy. It's called mm-hmm. reps and warranties. It mm-hmm. essentially takes the reps that the seller outlined that the buyer uh, vetted with due diligence. And the insurance industry, industry simply says, look, buyer, if, if there's a breach and it leads to financial loss, come to us. Don't go to the seller, come to us. Yep. Buyer has certainty of collection. They avoid the very, you know, tenacious part of probably having to claw back money from the seller. Yep. And so they're taken care of. Seller gets a clean exit. The policy attachment point is lower than most escrows. So they don't have as much money held back in escrow. So they have yep. more cash at closing. Better yet, they get peace of mind because if there is a loss, you know, they don't have to pay it. They're not going to lose any of their money. And so it just seems to smooth the process over. And the beautiful thing uh, for us is in concept, this was great, but in practice, it wasn't very useful because rep and warranty was reserved for deals at $100 million transaction value and up. They had very Mm -hmm. 
strict eligibility standards. You had to have audited financials, a battery of uh, third-party diligence reports and everything. And so it just wasn't feasible for the smaller deals. Competition has come into the insurance market since the pandemic. Yeah. And now eligibility for rep and warranty has now fallen to deals as low as 10 to $12 million. Mm -hmm. so, and you don't need audited financials now to, to qualify. And so that's what the purpose of our conversation with a lot of people out there is to make them aware that this thing that used to not be available is now available for the lower middle market where I really believe it makes a yeah. huge impact. Because if you can save somebody a million bucks or 2 million, that's, that's huge. You know, but don't take my word for it. You know, Todd, good, bad, or indifferent. What experience have you had with rep and warranty? Yeah, no, you. It's a great point, Patrick. It the biggest thing for me is it removes a potentially contentious item out of the process at a critical time in the in the process. And and you described it well that uh, you know you get through a due diligence process and now you got this. Uh, this this additional thing and 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 to a to a seller who doesn't do this for a living you know that feels very um yeah, not bad faith. faith yeah bad faith or whatever and so the rep and warranty product kind of smooths that over quite a bit and and so we have utilized rep and warranty insurance in pretty much every deal that we've done uh, for the last two, maybe three years, I believe. And um, it does it does smooth that over. The statistics I've seen is it's that that part of the insurance market is really exploded because yes. it's a, for exactly the reason it's it, it's good for all, you know, both parties involved in, in the process. And as an M&A professional, I want as little friction in the process as as I, I can get. And that's that's. Uh, that's great. It's going to be interesting to, to me to see. I've seen a lot of statistics about the the um, implementation of rep and warranty policies. I haven't seen a lot of statistics around the claims against those policies and how often those policies or those claims get um, uh, get paid out. Luckily, we haven't had any any issues with 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 any of our policies, and you know, knock on wood. Hopefully, that is that 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 remains um, that remains the case. That's not something I want to be an expert in. So, it's a great product. It's something that just makes the deal process work a lot better on our part. And um, you know, I think it it's uh, it's something that has been a real boon actually to the to the to the insurance carriers who develop this and it's become a lot more competitive. Um, in the early days, there were two carriers that were, that, that were, that were, uh, that, that had 90% of the market. Now, yeah. now you got a lot of other options there, which is good for uh, competition. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it helps because the more carriers are out there, there, there's just more variety where a couple of carriers will, will uh, specifically target an industry or transaction size yeah. and treat it more favorably. They're just more familiar. They're more comfortable with it. And then I would say on the claim side, uh, so far we haven't heard anything industry-wide. Uh, reports are coming on, you know, what the impact of COVID has been on rep and warranty policies. By and large, though, less than you know, ten percent of the policies out there, maybe uh, fifteen to twenty percent of the policies incur a, a, a breach reported hasn't been paid, but they just notify the carrier that. Actual right. payments is, is, is very small. It's a very profitable line of coverage, even with the competition. Sure. <laughs> we only, the, what we'll see is that because the demand is getting bigger, I would just say for 2021, 
we could probably see insurance carriers maybe raising their retentions a little and maybe bringing the pricing up just by a little, like a point or two, just because the demand's so high, not because of losses, which is a nice signal that it, it's going to be sustainable. So we're very, very happy with that. And now we're able to do not only you know platform uh, deals, but add-ons. And so I think that's just the more out there that, that we could be available, the, be the better for everybody. Todd, with, you know, where we are right now with hopefully we're at the beginning of the end of, of the pandemic now as we move forward and people are beginning to move out and get out and do site visits and everything like that. What trends do you see for the rest of the year into 2022, either industrial, Clavis Capital? What do you see out there? Yeah, oh, the market is is extremely competitive, and I think will remain so. There is so much capital that's out there uh, chasing deals. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, COVID took a lot of what would otherwise be transactable companies off the market for whatever. You know, people were were, were busy dealing with with uh, COVID related things. Certainly, in in industries that were heavily impacted. Um, but it didn't change the amount of capital chasing those deals. And so uh, we're seeing all kinds of just perverse behavior in the market. We're seeing people that have come that, that traditionally would be more uh, upper middle um, to, to large cap uh, uh, buyers come, to come down into the middle market and even into the lower middle market space. It's gotten a lot more competitive. And I don't see that changing. I really don't. The I think that's going to be with us for a long period of time. Uh, the debt markets still remain very, very uh, liquid, and so you know, I and and I don't see a big correction to that coming anytime soon. So it's gonna it's gonna remain very difficult. It's gonna remain a seller's market, and uh, you know, I think that's going to be with us for for quite some time. Uh, I think the industrial space will continue to be a good space to be in. Uh, but I, I think, you know, a lot of spaces are going to be good spaces to be in. Yeah, I, I don't see any shrinkage in the industrial sector, particularly with logistics. So many people don't realize how to get a good, you know, product from point A to point point B. And, yeah. and, and as you said, that's evolving as we speak now. And there's plenty of room out there for that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think, one of the things I wanted to ask you, do you think because of COVID, there are a number of companies that may have been out on the market and they, they you know, pulled their, pulled their chips off the table, they, they pulled their horns in and then weathered the storm and they may want to wait to get 12 months of performance post-pandemic mm -hmm. on the books to kind of show where they are to improve their status before they go back out? Yeah, absolutely. We're we're um, what we're seeing and also hearing anecdotally in the market is that the second and third quarter of this year, you know, we talk to a lot of financial advisors and investment bankers and, and people that represent sellers, and what they're telling us is towards the end of Q2 and into Q3 this year, there's going to be a lot that comes on the market because you're going to have gotten that. Q1 and Q2, really Q2 of 2020 off the off the trailing 12. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that will continue into Q3 and Q4 and, and even into 2022. And so I, I think you're going to see a lot of that as people have recovered that you're going to just see. And, and you know, if you think about it, if you have a, 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 a business owner that's call it um, that's in their in their late 50s, early 60s, 
they've now been through three major financial disruptions in their in their career between you know this and and 2008 and even even going back to buying a at some point people go you know what i i I don't want to go through another one of those major disruptions and so and you've got baby boomers that are retiring and and the transfer of wealth the generational wealth transfer a lot of those in family-owned companies is going to happen it's just going to the next i I think through the remainder of my career honestly is going to remain a heightened amount of activity, both on the on the supply of deals and on the, the the demand for deals out there. Man, I hope you're right. I I, I really hope you're right. Well, Todd Delphinius with Clavis Capital, really appreciate uh, having you here today. How can our audience members find you? Yeah, um, uh, so a couple different ways. Uh, our website is uh, is uh, claviscp.com. So www.claviscp, C-L-A-V-I-S, C is in Charlie, P is in partners.com. Um, and then uh, on there is all of our contact information. Uh, my phone number, my cell number is on there and, and email address. So that's probably the easiest way to get us. And uh, we would love to hear from anybody out there that uh, certainly that that is looking to transact, but even even somebody that's looking for um, you know some advice and counsel on what to do, we 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 take those phone calls as well. I, I think I think that's a great uh, value to people out there. Is you know there may not be a deal happening right tomorrow, but you know having those initial conversations goes a long way. So I really do appreciate you offering that out to the community, Todd Dalfinius. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you. We're going to talk again soon. That sounds good. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it.